Can you hear me? Uh, now, yeah. Okay, now, here we go. Oh, that's good. No, man. Old people and technology. <laughs> old, te- old people and technology do not work, man. Uh, yeah, but it's funny because I, I, I started doing stuff like at 630. I said, I better fire up my laptop because between my phone and my iPad, I never use my laptop. Yeah, so then I'm looking and it's like, I don't even have Messenger loaded on this thing. And I, I don't even think my, my headset is... is the driver of my headset isn't on this thing. And, oh, it's just... <laughs> You're not recording this right now, are you? I sure am. <laughs> <laughs> okay, folks. This is going to be one funky long episode. Robert Sassad, an old buddy. I met him back when we were both in the production business. Robert has since then been all over the place doing different things, you know, ordinary stuff, like working for the armed forces in Afghanistan and rebuilding Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. I I know we're stepping out, okay, I know we're stepping outside the show business topic here, but hey, a good story is a good story, man. As Robert put it, if you're not happy where you are, then be somewhere else. We'll get on with the episode right after this. The Backstage Cowboys podcast is brought to you by AVL Media Group and Avolites, who make the best lighting consoles in the world. If you live in Canada, you now have access to the Avolites Academy online learning platform. The cost is $229, and that includes an editor AvoKey delivered directly to your door. Head on over to BackstageCowboys.com and click on the Avolites Academy logo to get all the details. Now, if you don't live in Canada, well... That means you're in another country. So if you're in the United States, head on over to avolites.us. Anywhere else in the world, just go directly to avolites.com and you'll find all the resources available in your country. And now, let's get on with the show. Here is another episode of the Backstage Cowboys podcast. Where's my drummer? And, and you know, I'm, um, I'm I'm gonna go back and forth here because the thing is, I we met when you were you know in the show business, and uh, and we did some gigs together and all that, uh, and then after that, you did a whole bunch of stuff which I definitely want to get to, uh, but I would like to know how how you started off and how you wound up in you know doing that to begin with. It was it was in a galaxy far far away. <laughs> When I was younger, I had some friends that played in a top 40 cover band. Okay. And I really loved plugging in all the stuff. I liked I, I liked being involved with it. So I would go to all their gigs and I'd help them carry amps up the stairs. And then I'd help them plug in. And with every gig I did, I memorized how their stage was set up and where everything was plugged in and how they liked things. How old were you at that time? Oh, I must have been 19, maybe. Okay. And after a while doing their gigs, they realized that 
they didn't have to check up on me anymore. Mm-hmm. They would walk on the stage and their pitcher of water was right where they needed it and their towel was right where they needed it and everything was ready to go. And I just became a roadie, basically. <laughs> yeah. And I had a lot of fun doing it. And then I was playing bass at the time, not very well, but I could plunk a few notes. Uh-huh. And um, I said, well, you know, I'm having a lot of fun doing this in the back end. It would be fun to be the guy on stage. So I met some guys and we started playing some music and then I was doing my own gigs. Hmm. And then um, I stopped doing it for a long time. I moved to, I got married. I moved to Halifax. Okay. I opened my own business doing stuff for the boats, the ships that came into the port of Halifax. Uh huh. And then my marriage ended and I got rid of all that stuff and I came back to Montreal and my life had pretty much fallen apart by that time. So I, um, I needed a, I needed something new and I looked in the paper and I saw an ad for the repercussion theater, which is in Montreal, um, a Shakespearean theater company. Oh, I never heard of it. No, years ago, these, this guy, um, he was in theater school and he realized that unless you lived in a big city, you had no access to live theater. Uh-huh. So he took a bunch of trucks and lighting and a stage and audio equipment and a bunch of actors. And he went out on the road um, doing live Shakespearean theater to anywhere that wanted to pay. Hmm. So we would roll into a town and they would have a park beside the high school. And all that was required from them was electrical power for the stage, um, washroom facilities, and a park to put the show on. Wow. So what, we, was the stage on a trailer? Or how did no, you the do stage, it? The stage was just um, platforms. Okay. It was, it, was not, it was like four by eight platforms, but the, the leggings under the stage were um, way more robust than your standard um, like legs for, for drum risers or anything. Okay. And we would we had two trucks of gear and two vans full of actors. Wow. And I got hired on to be a driver slash tech. Hmm. And we would roll into a town. My first gig I ever did with them was in a place in Ohio. I believe it was Sydney, Ohio. And we would roll in, we would set up the stage, we would perform Romeo and Juliet. The crowd would come, and it was free because we were getting paid by the municipality. And we had a full stage production of Romeo and Juliet, and the show would end around 11, and we'd strike, and by 12.30, we were gone. It was like it never happened. Hmm. And we would drive through the night, and the next night, we would do it in Toledo, Ohio. The next night, we did it somewhere else. And so, um, yeah, when the tour ended, I had a great time. And at the time, it was exactly, this was the summer of 2000. And it was exactly what I needed at the time, because after my marriage fell apart and everything, I was pretty depressed. And just being on the road, um, doing a bunch of one-nighters and traveling and getting to know all these new people 
and just the work I was doing, I just, I loved every minute of it. Mm. And at the time it was exactly what I needed. Yeah. I know what you, I know what you're, uh, what you were feeling. I know the feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And I, when the tour ended, I got back to Montreal and it's like, well, I need a job. (laughs) And I looked in the paper because, you know, trust me, I'm old enough to remember before the internet. Yeah. (laughs) So you actually had to go looking for jobs in the help wanted um, column in the classifieds in the newspaper. Yeah. And there was an ad in there for Clota Productions. And it was Richard Zakarian that put the ad in. And I called him up and I sent him my resume and he said, come in for an interview. And my interview lasted about four and a half minutes and he hired me and I started the next day. Wow. And my first gig, I went to, I think it was Beth Ora Synagogue. Mm -hmm. And we set up two Manfrotto's with uh, four techno beams and a DJ kit with an EV system and two mammoths. Yeah. And then we went to the Sanctuary. Remember that club? The, the Sanctuary. That, that was a club, right? Well, it, was, it was a private um, venue. That's oh. where they held the Christmas party every year where we had to go down onto the tennis court. And they, they used to do this massive setup. I, it it does court. ring a bell. It rings a bell, but it's, it's far in my head. I remember yeah. something like that. Yeah. But I went to I went there to do the second install. It was the same thing. It was just basic DJ kit, four techno beams. And then I went home and then at midnight I had to go back out and do the pack ups. Yeah. And to be honest, the next day I could barely move. <laughs> My muscles were so sore because the first synagogue I did, um, the party room was in the basement. Mm-hmm. And we carried road cases full of cables and techno beams and everything down two flights of stairs. Oh God! And then we then we carried them back up two flights of stairs. Yeah. And the next day, um, we had another gig somewhere. I forget where it was the next day, but I got to work in the morning. And Richard said, "So, what do you think? You're going to stick around?" And it's like, "Yeah, sure. Why not?" <laughs> and um, seven years later, I gave Archie my letter and said, I'm moving on. <laughs> wow. But I was there for seven years. So you were there for, um, I thought you were there for longer. So when no. we met, you had, you know, you had just started, right? Or, you know, recently started. Yeah, I, I, I was there. Richard was my boss um, for the first couple of, for the first three years, maybe. And then he left to go somewhere else. Okay. And, Archie offered me his job because I was basically Richard's right hand by that time. Okay. Um, so I, I took over from Richard when he left. And then I did years worth of superior sound gigs. Uh-huh. And, um, and then I, I, I just needed a change. It, it became so repetitive. Hmm. The summer season would come on us again, and I'd see my production schedule come up, and it's like, oh, a free ice cream day at Ben and Jerry's, two power speakers and a DJ kit. Yeah. And the next thing was like a party at the living room, 24-foot truss, six techno beams, DJ kit. And it was like, oh, my God, I've done these. I would take my old packing list and just copy and paste and change the name <laughs> and, and change the date when it was. 
it it just became so repetitive and yeah. so boring. There was no nothing I liked about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's it, when it was tough. I mean, those gigs were happening. Uh, those private gigs, and they were happening in rooms that weren't always accessible. No, and it wasn't only that. It was, it was. There was so many of them at the time when I was doing that. Superior Sound was firing on all cylinders. Mm-hmm. We we had so many gigs. I would have crews out. I remember before I took over from Richard, we would leave in three cube trucks, and the Superior Sound team was me and Benjamin uh, Benjamin Chartrand and Andre Menard mm-hmm. and. Uh, Jean Sebastian Paquette. It was like six of us that were the team. Yeah. And we would leave with three trucks full of gear. And we would do, each truck would do three basic DJ setups. Hmm. You know, sometimes we'd have Manfrotto's with Techno Beams, DJ kit, two Mammuts. And we'd set up two or three events each. And then at one in the morning, we'd race around and pull them all down. (laughs) And we'd get back to the warehouse and we'd empty all the trucks. And I'd get home at three in the morning. And the next day at nine o'clock, we were all back at the warehouse loading our trucks for the next day again. Yeah. Oh, just for the listeners, momuts are uh, disco effects like uh, mushrooms. Yeah. And and funny enough, they still exist. (laughs) Oh, yeah. They have little star shapes and stuff. And it's just a little motor that goes back and forth when it wants to. Today, they're LED. Back in the day, you could blow blow a breaker uh, with with two of those things if you had, you know, something else on it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And then some of the... Some of the places we did these parties too, it's like it didn't even have the power. Yeah. We'd have to true. take a hundred foot cable down a hallway to find a plug to plug something in because the, the rooms we were in didn't have enough power to do what we needed it to do. Yeah. It it was just, you know, and we're in the same venue all the time, all the time. Hmm. I know every synagogue in Montreal. I it just, <laughs> I've, I've been in them all a million times. And then, when I took over Richard's job, then it was my responsibility to keep the teams occupied and, and schedule everything. And I would go to make sure everything got there on time. And I would go there at night to make sure everything got packed up on time to a certain extent. I mean, there was some, there was some gigs I didn't do that because I could trust the team just to go and get them done. Yeah. But I mean, I'd still get phone calls at two in the morning say, Oh, the truck has a flat or, Oh or, yeah. You know, like it, it, there was, it was nonstop. And of course, all the gigs happened on the weekend. Uh-huh. So no I, life. There was no social life at all. Yeah. My friends would say, hey, we're having a pool party barbecue. You want to come? It's like, I can't. I'm working. Yeah. It's, it was a Saturday. I'm working. I got four events to take care of. Hmm. Like there was no social life. And it just got to the point. It's like, you know what? I'm not having any fun anymore. And then I started doing some bigger gigs because I went to talk to Archie. And I said, I, I want to learn how to do bigger gigs. So there was one, there was an ABBA tribute band that played at the Bell Center. Uh-huh. And I, I went down with John Young and Bill Cannell. And I just basically shadowed them while they set up a concert at the Bell Center. Yeah. And that led to me being the production manager at Plastic Art with you as the lighting guy when we did the Pointer Sisters. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that that was more of where I wanted to go at that point. Yeah. I wanted to do the, the bigger gigs. 
because I just wanted to get out of the private market. I, the private market, the novelty had worn off uh -huh. a long time ago. But um, so you started doing bigger gigs, and at some point, you, you know, what happened? Did you continue doing bigger gigs, or were you still handling the uh, all the all the private was, market gigs? I was still doing the private market gigs. Yeah, okay. I I did I did a couple of big gigs, but at the same time that I was doing that, whenever I did have a day off, I started doing um, theater lighting. I started working a lot at the Centaur Theater. Yeah, I remember that. And I started going up into the into the to the caves up in in the ceiling, and doing lighting hangs for for stage plays. Mm -hmm. And I I absolutely loved that because it was calm and quiet, and it's mm -hmm. like you go in and you do a lighting hang and you do your focus and and that's it. Yeah, and, and then, you work in a controlled the, environment, right? You you got everything yeah. handy. You're you're. You don't have to go outside in the snow and low trucks and stuff. No, and everything yeah. was there. And once everything was focused, the play would run for three, four weeks. Uh huh. So there was nothing to do. You'd go in there sometimes, and I spent two days in there just taking apart a bunch of source boards and polishing the lenses yeah. and putting them back together. Hmm. You know, it was it was good. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. So you did that for a while. Uh, I did that at the same time. I was doing Cloda. At the same time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So when you yeah. uh, uh, when you quit Cloda, uh, what did you have something set up for you, or what? What was next? <laughs> well, I didn't. Okay. I decided. I decided. No plan. <laughs> I had. I had no plan. I had been here. I had worked at Cloda for like six years. I had never taken a vacation. I never had any money to. But I had a friend living here in just outside of Victoria, BC. There's a little seaside town called Sydney. And I had a friend living there and she was always, I met her in Nova Scotia years ago, but she was from here and she had come home. And she says, oh, you got to come and visit me. You got to come and, and I had never been to BC. So I took two weeks off from Cloda and I flew out here and I took a vacation for the first time in years. Hmm. And I absolutely fell in love with this place. Well, yeah, I, I believe flew home. you. Been there, flew been home. there a couple of times, yeah. man. I, I understand. I mean, Vancouver Island is beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. I love it here. And I went home in July, and I started thinking about moving. And it's like, well, I've been at Cloda a long time, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I was talking to a friend of mine one night, and he gave me the best advice anyone could have given me. And he said, basically, bottom line, if you're not happy where you are, then be somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And I listened to him and I said, okay. And I went and I typed up a letter of resignation and I took three copies in my back pocket in envelopes. And I walked into Archie's office and I pulled one out and I handed it to him and he opened it and he read it and he said, best of luck to you. Yeah, And I, I walked into Harry Cloda's office and I pulled out the white envelope and as soon as he saw it, he goes, I know what this is. Yeah, And that... then the third one I gave to Dino because Dino was actually like a higher up in the company and I figured he should know as well. And then we all had a meeting together and Harry said, is there anything I can do to change your mind? And I said, no. Mm -hmm. At that point, I, I wanted a change in my life. I, it was time. And I don't change stuff like, oh, oh I'm going to wear different colored clothes. 
when I change something, I change it. <laughs> <laughs> I had... I had a storage locker in Shattagy with all my stuff in it from my marriage, all my furniture and dishes and stuff. And I went in and I took the stuff that meant the most to me. And I put it in my car. I had a Chrysler Intrepid at the time. Okay. And if it, if it didn't fit in my car, it didn't make the trip. Wow. Every, everything else, I either sold it, dumped it, or gave it away. I rented a 16 foot cube truck hmm. and I drove around cause I had asked people, Hey, do you need a washer and dryer? Hey, do you need some dishes? Hey, do you need this? I took one Saturday and I drove around and I delivered stuff to everyone for free. Here you go. Have a box of towels. Here wow. you go. Have a, and I gave it all away and huh. I loaded my, I loaded my car right to the roof and on the passenger side too, I could just barely see the mirror on the passenger side of the car. And I left on January 1st, 2007, I left to do the cross Canada drive. Wow. And it was, it was lucky because it was a winter where there wasn't a lot of snow hmm. and I had dry highways all the way. So yeah, I, I left and I drove cross Canada and I had clean dry, uh, clean roads all the way. Wow. You Piece were lucky. Of this was January. I was, yeah. Yep. The first six days of January. Wow. And I I was still smoking at the time, so I would stop and get a large Tim Hortons coffee, and I'd light a cigarette, and I would just drive and just let my mind wander. And mm. I, it was clean and green till I hit the sign that said "Welcome to BC," <laughs> and then I drove through eighteen hours of the worst blizzard I had oh. ever seen in my life, <laughs> going through going through the mountains, through the Coquihalla Pass, and it just. It was just a nightmare drive. Wow. And then I arrived into my friend's driveway at about three in the morning on the, the morning of January 6th. With still no plan. Oh, no. Hell, hell no. <laughs> I, had, I had my final paycheck from Cloda. I had some money in my savings account, mm -hmm. and, and that was it. I had a car full of crap. Wow. And... My friend who lived here had inherited a, like a 30, 32 foot um, cabin cruiser boat. And she said, Hey, if you want to live on the boat, I'll let you live on the boat. Yeah, because so you I can do that in BC, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I went down and I left all my stuff in her basement. And I took just my clothes and my laptop and I went for the first two months I was here. I lived on her boat hmm. and I didn't have internet. So every morning I would go down to the local coffee shop that had internet. They opened at 6 a.m. So I would go at 6 a.m. and I would take my laptop with me and I'd answer all my emails and I'd have a cup of coffee. And I started talking to the guy and he goes, oh, man, good help. It's so hard to find and everything else. I said, well, I'll work for you. And he hmm. said, so are you serious? I said, sure, why not? Hmm. So the first job I got here, I was actually a barista <laughs> in a place called Serious Coffee. And the next thing you know, I'm behind the counter making lattes and cappuccinos. <laughs> no idea what I was doing. They trained me. They showed me how to do it. Well, everything's learnable, right? Yeah. So I did that for the first four months I was here. And then uh, I still needed more money because that was like a part-time kind of job. Yeah. So I was walking down the street 
and I saw a sign in a True Value Hardware store, and it said "Responsible, mature person needed for for to work at the hardware store to um, to be like a supervisor or something." Okay. So I threw my resume at it, and I talked to the guy, and he goes, "Okay, you're hired." Of course. So next thing you know, <laughs> so next thing you know, I'm I'm working at a hardware store. I know nothing about hardware, but hey. <laughs> You know, he wanted to open the store late on Thursday and Friday nights. Yeah. And he wanted somebody responsible to be the floor supervisor during that time so he could go home. Hmm. So I started working at a hardware store <laughs> and I, I realized quite quickly I'm, I'm, I'm not a people person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you got to deal with clients there. Yeah, it was... Um, it was, um, I didn't mind the, cl- the customers who would come in and say, hey, you want to mix me a gallon of paint? Absolutely. <laughs> but some people would come in and the guy would say to me, uh, I want to buy a, a, a barbecue name brand, uh, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I say, oh, we don't sell these here. And he goes, oh, I saw one in here. I'm sure I saw one in here. It's like, no, we don't sell those here. And they'd fight with me. <laughs> I'm sure I saw one. It was right over here. No, we've never had that name brand in the store. And it's like, man, I'm going to put you in a headlock and just hit you till you stop talking. <laughs> I just like, I am not a people person. I told my boss at one point, I would come into the store at night and I would stock the shelves, mop the floor, but I don't want to talk to these people. <laughs> it was just, but at the, at that time, I, I, I was happy enough. I had an apartment in Sydney. I had a job. It didn't pay great, but I could pay my bills. Hmm. You know, I was doing okay. And then a friend of mine who I hadn't seen for a long time, I got an email from him and he says, hey, I'm in Burnaby visiting my sister. I want to come over and visit you. So I say, sure, come over. So he shows up at the hardware store one night, right when we're closing. I go out for dinner with him and he goes, yeah, you haven't seen me for a long time because I'm working in Afghanistan. Hmm. And I said, "What? what are you doing in Afghanistan? He goes, well, I'm the manager of a transport department for this company called Atco. Okay. He says, I need a right-hand man, and I have authority to hire anyone I want, and I want you. Wow. <laughs> so over, over how long it took me to drink a cup of coffee, I decided to quit my job, pack a suitcase, and go work in a war zone. Wow. And, and okay, so without thinking it over, that didn't bother you. No. It was time for a change, Claude. When I change, I change big time. I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> and plus it it paid a stupid amount of money, more money than I've ever seen in my life. Well, I remember seeing a Facebook post with you and, and probably your buddy there, uh, with holding up a sign saying apparently they can pay us enough. <laughs> yes, because that, believe it or not, that guy was the owner of the hardware store. Where I what? Because yeah, because the next day I went to him and I said, my friend was here. He works in Afghanistan, and he says, man, you couldn't pay me enough to go there. <laughs> and then when I got to Afghanistan, he sent me an email and he says, hey, I was I was thinking, you know, if, if there's any chance of you getting me a job over there. Go for it. Really? So I asked I asked my boss, and he goes, yeah, we could use him to do this. 
So I sent him an email and said, okay, if you want a job, you got it. So he flew over to Afghanistan, and that's when we took that picture with the, 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 the sign that said, apparently you can pay us. <laughs> <laughs> so how was it in, in Afghanistan? I remember you were telling me that you, you were actually uh, in charge of the uh, water supply. Is that is that correct? Yeah. yeah. So how did I that was, work? Um, I was a water delivery coordinator because in Afghanistan, in Kandahar, we were on the Kandahar airfield which was the airport, the Kandahar airport. Mm -hmm. um, when the U.S. military finally captured the airport, our our departure lounge for the airport was called the TLS, which stood for the Taliban's last stand. Wow. Um, that's The military basically surrounded the airport, and they had a firefight for however long it took. And then the American army took control of the airport and the runways. Once they had the flight line, they could fly all their supplies in um, and their helicopters could leave to go do missions out to the FOBs, which is the forward operating bases. Mm -hmm. So once they captured the airport, then um, the base built up around the airport, basically. Okay. So the Kandahar Airfield military base started to grow and, and blossom into what it was when I was there. Okay, so when you got there, yeah, the base was installed and they had secured the area. Uh, but how, yep. how safe was it? It was it was safe. Um, the only thing that was a danger to us was rocket attacks because the Taliban would fire rockets into the base. Yeah. So an air raid siren would go off and everyone would run to the bunkers, these concrete bunkers, hmm. and you had a steel vested jacket the back and the front were all steel and you had a steel helmet and you would run in and hang out to the bunkers till they got the all clear signal hmm. and um did that happen often? that was it often enough um it happened it happened the first night i was there <laughs> a welcoming and, party yeah and when my boss my boss from the hardware store the night he showed up we had one Oh. So it was like it was like yeah they know when the new people are there and it's scary. <laughs> but was it just an alarm or was there really shelling happening? Oh, there was shelling happening. It wasn't an alarm. There was oh, wow. there was rockets that landed um, in the base, and hmm. you could feel them sometimes. If they, depending how close to, they were to you, you could feel the ground shake. You could feel the impact. And when I was there, there was rockets that actually hit uh, the accommodation building of a construction company that were there. And several people got killed. Oh, the rocket just basically went right through the building. And they they didn't get warning in time. Well, you just don't know where they're going. I mean, these these weren't um, controlled rockets like the U.S. Yeah. military has. These were just a guy would prop it up on a on a, a on a little X made out of two by fours and light a fuse. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, like you never knew where these things were going. Jeez. But I stayed there. I stayed there for nineteen months. It was it was. I mean, it was a, a 90 30 rotation. So I was in, in theater for 90 days and then off for 30 days. Okay. And when you were off for 30 days, were you were you remained on the base or were you flown back oh, home? Oh, no. I, I, I was flowing back home. Okay. And how safe well, was flying there and back? It was it was good. I mean, we would fly from the Kandahar airfield, we would leave right from the runway in, 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 the, in the base. Okay. And we would go to Dubai. And then Dubai was our hub airport, and mm. then we I'd fly home from there. Okay. And then, you know, going in when you when you went to land in Kandahar, 
as you were landing, the, the plane would do um, evasive maneuvers in case there was sort of uh, like ground to air missiles. Hmm. So it wasn't it wasn't just like coming down on an Air Canada flight. And the the plane actually would zigzag and do evasive maneuvers Oof. to uh, to try to throw off anything that may have been. But I mean, I I never felt really unsafe there. Uh huh. And yeah. I was the I was the water delivery coordinator because there is no infrastructure there. Hmm. So basically every every cluster of buildings would have like a five or ten thousand uh, gallon water tank. Okay. And they would use that water to flush your toilets and shower. So my water trucks, which were like six thousand, like you know, you you see them driving around in in the in the winter time. You know, they like the SO Home Comfort oil truck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I had trucks like that that would just take water yeah. and I had routes and the driver would have to hit so many stops in a day and we just kept all the water tanks full. That was my job was coordinating that, making sure everything was kept full of water. Okay. And where was the water coming from? Um, from the base, actually. There's a, um, under, this, under the city of Kandahar because it's in the valley. So they got all the runoff from the snow from the mountains. Okay. And there's actually a pretty substantial aquifer under Kandahar. Okay. So we would just pump the water right out and, hmm. and use that. Jeez. And so how how comfortable was it staying there? It was okay. Um, we lived in, you ever see a construction site? You see those little office buildings with yeah. a yellow band around the top and it says ATCO? Yeah. That's the company I worked for. So basically we lived in those. Okay, so you you live like in well trailers, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Oh yeah, yeah. well they can get comfortable, I suppose. Yeah, I you was had, comfortable. You I had mean, air conditioning was... in there. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, you need it too. I mean, the, I think the hottest day we had there um, was fifty-five degrees Celsius. Oh jeez, oh, yeah. But it's it's but it's a dry heat. Yeah, I know. I know about dry heat. I've I've experienced it, and it's very very different because. Uh, I've you know I've been in Vegas on really really hot days and in uh, in the desert also uh, in the Amer- American desert but there are days that it becomes extremely hot and it's it's weird because it's like you step out of your hotel it's like you're stepping into an oven yeah so it's but it's not uncomfortable like it's not like the hot humidity we have here so no it's it, not it, yeah it's very different but but at the same time it's more dangerous because you don't feel it as much and you can dry up really quick yeah that was always the thing i mean everybody that worked there with me that that was the question you heard the most is are you drinking enough water Uh yeah and and that's everyone was very concerned the water was just everywhere they had like pallets of water you could just grab like two flats of 24 bottles of water Uh and take them to your room okay like they they supplied so much water it wasn't even funny well i mean it's life but see, Dubai is the exact opposite. Dubai has that heat, but it's humid. Oh, really? It's like it's Montreal humid. Dubai is incredibly humid. Oh, I didn't know that. And everything is air conditioned to the hilt. So you go to a shopping mall, and it's seventy degrees in the mall, <sighs> and you step out, and it's a hundred and ten with humidity. Yeah. Your glasses fog up the minute you step <laughs> outside. Your glasses fog up like like they do in the winter. Yeah. It's just from the humidity. Oh, that's cr- I didn't know that. I I guess it's because they're you know they're they're next to the sea, right? Yep. Hmm. 
like uh, when you and go I, in the Caribbeans, only yeah. it's even hotter. Yeah. Huh. I'm learning but stuff. Then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's more. There's oh, there's so much more. Well, go ahead, man. <laughs> I'm all ears. After after Afghanistan, I got the same thing. I got tired. I was there for 19 months in total. That that counts in theater and vacation time. Uh huh. And oh, by the way, how I did can't... how did you get out of that contract? It wasn't a contract. It was just like a job. Yeah, it was like a job. But at some point, you know, you put an end to it, or they put an end to it. Yeah. How did that happen? No, I did. You did? I did. I yeah. I was I was at home, and um, I decided that I wanted to get back to some kind of uh, say normalcy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had made the decision that I would go back for one more three month rotation, okay. and then I would leave. So when I got back from my vacation, I gave my boss my letter of resignation and I said, I'll give you three months notice that I'm leaving. No two weeks notice. I'm going to give you three months notice that I'm leaving. And I trained a new guy that was going to take over for me. Mm -hmm. And after three months, I got on the plane and I watched Kandahar Airfield disappear out of my plane window. And that was it. Mm. I came home. And I was stupid enough to think that having the work I did in Afghanistan on my resume would be a positive thing. And people would be saying, like, let's hire this guy. If he can work in Afghanistan, he can work for me. Yeah. And it didn't work out that way. Oh, tell I me came, about it. I came, I came home from Afghanistan, and it was when to the, I came home in October 2010. And that's when the economy of like the global economy kind of tanked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember. and nobody was nobody was hiring anybody. Yeah, two thousand eight was actually the hit, right? Okay, well, two thousand ten was still having yeah. aftershocks. Yeah, it was the aftermath. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I could not find a job. I put my resume everywhere, and I could not find a job. Hmm. And it was like, wow. Well, you couldn't find a job because of the economy or just or because of your resume. I think it was just because of the economy at the time. Yeah. And I was like, wow, I I applied for my um, my EI, which is funny because if you quit your job, you're not supposed to get EI. But everyone that quit that was Canadian applied for their EI and they told me how to do it. Because in all the questions, like, why did you leave your job? Just keep mentioning the war. Yeah. So it said, why did you leave your job? It's like, well, it was in the war zone, and, and I felt unsafe. Did you mention this concern to your supervisor? Yes, I did. What was their response? Well, he was in a war, too. So, <laughs> so because, of the salary, because of the salary I was making, um, I got EI at the maximum allowable. Uh-huh. So it was enough to to live off of because I had some savings and stuff. Well, you'd think for you know for the service you did for the country and for actually the rest of the world, uh, you'd get some recognition. Yeah, well, I got enough money to live on. Yeah, well, you know, it's getting paid is one thing, but you know, afterwards, you you got to rebuild your life. Yeah, and then they get a call from a guy I worked with in Afghanistan who still worked for Atco. And he called me out of the blue and he says, what are you doing right now? And I said, not much, nothing actually. 
He says, oh, he says, there was just a big earthquake in Haiti. Hmm. That was in 2010. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. He says, there was a big earthquake in Haiti, and ATCO just picked up a contract to go rebuild some buildings for the Haitian government. You want to? You want a piece of the team? You want to be on the team? And you know, I said, absolutely. <laughs> and he says, okay, I'll send you all the paperwork. So next thing you know, I'm on a plane going to Haiti, <laughs> and I was in Haiti. I left Kandahar in October. I went to Haiti in January, and um, I stayed there for nine months. And what we did there is we built temporary structures for three ministries of the Haitian government whose buildings had collapsed hmm. during the during the earthquake. So we built these temporary buildings, and once they were up, um, we just stayed there for a year and um, trained the Haitian people how to care for the buildings. Yeah. So ba- basically, we had local Haitian guys that were doing the work. Mm-hmm. They would come in in the morning, they'd fire up all the generators, they would check the air conditioning, they'd turn on all the lights, they'd make sure everything was working. And at the end of the day, we'd turn everything off and go home. Hmm. So I did that for nine months. <laughs> and I left in September of that year. And I got home and I got another call from ATCO that said, hey, um, we're missing a body on a project up in the Arctic, in Nunavut, in Resolute Bay. Uh, do you want to put your ass in that seat? And I said, sure. <laughs> so the next thing you know, I'm on a plane going to Resolute Bay. I got there in in May. So I was off from September till May. And I got off the plane in May in Resolute and I stayed there until September. It was 99 days that I was in Resolute Bay, hmm. which was very different than Afghanistan or Haiti because I'm up in the high Arctic. And, yeah. Um, in May, it's still a winter there. Hmm. And ATCO had purchased a hotel in Resolute Bay, and they were going in transition from the original owner to ATCO. Okay. So they just needed someone... I was overqualified for the job. They didn't want to give me the job full-time because they felt I was overqualified for it. But hmm. they just needed a body to sit in the seat and keep things moving until someone else was hired to fill that job. Okay. So when they found someone to fill that job, then I left to go home. Huh. So that was 90 that days. Was, that was 99 days, yeah. Okay, and, 99 uh, days. It was funny because they had the Canada Day Parade on July 1st, and it was snowing. <laughs> during the Canada Day Parade. <laughs> and Resolute Bay has 400 people. We normally so Canada... get ra- rain on Canada Day. <laughs> yeah. In Montreal, or, anyway. Or, or really hot. Yeah. Um, in a town of 400 people, their Canada Day Parade is like six trucks and a dog. <laughs> it, it, it didn't last long. Yeah. But it was snowing on Canada Day. And then summer hit, what they call summer. And summer lasts about three weeks and then on august 1st we had the first snowfall of the, the next year wow so then i stayed there till september and i left mm. and how's sunlight it was it was 24-hour daylight when i was there okay. so i was there in the in the in that time of year um that must be weird at, yeah even at three in the morning it's like broad daylight 
Yeah. You had blackout curtains on your windows and it, it kind of messes with your body, but I, I just, I just closed my blackout curtains and I slept anyway. I, I kept my normal, yeah. my normal sleep habits, mm-hmm. but it's funny because the people in the North don't run on any kind of time. A clock means nothing to them. Really? So you would hear three-year-old kids out on their tricycles at like two in the morning. Huh. Just, just running around and yelling and screaming and playing games and having fun. Um, and some of the some of the younger people would come looking for work. And they'd come to the hotel and they'd say, can we have a job? And you'd say, yeah, come in tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. And you could start working as a, as a chambermaid cleaning rooms. And they went, oh, yeah, okay, I'll be there. And they wouldn't come. <laughs> and three weeks later, they would show up. And they'd say, well, where have you been? Oh, I went hunting with my grandfather. Oh, uh, yeah. And it just the hunting took priority over coming to work. Mm. Like, you know, it just... It's another it just lifestyle. A, yeah, it was a completely different way of thinking Yeah, that that I wasn't used to. But it's like, it's how they live. So... Yeah. But then I when I left there, I came home in September. I got home just in early September. What year was and this? Then, oh, this must have been 2012. Okay. I got home in September and I stayed I stayed off work. I, once again I looked for a job, couldn't find anything. And then in January, the same guy that phoned me to go to Haiti <laughs> phoned me again. And he said, Atco just picked up a contract um two hours north of Fort McMurray. We're going to build um a camp for Husky Energy. You you want to be on the team, and I said absolutely. So I left home again, and I went up two hours north of Fort McMurray, and um, we started building um, a, a camp for the workers who were going to build the oil sands project for Husky Energy. Hmm. And I stayed up there for like a year and a half. Oh, that long. Yeah, but it was a, the contract was twenty one seven, so I was in in camp for twenty one days and then seven days at home. Oh yeah, uh, at home they they flew you back home. Yep, oh. they would they would pay pay for my flights every every twenty one days they'd fly me home for seven days. And how how far was uh, how long was flight was it? Um, you flew from Fort McMurray to Calgary, which was about an hour, and oh. then Calgary to Victoria is about an hour. Oh, that's not too bad. Okay. No, it's not too bad. Yeah, and they yeah, yeah. they paid the they paid the flight. It was fairly easy. Shorter than Afghanistan. Oh yeah. <laughs> Afghanistan was Afghanistan, so yeah, a yeah, yeah. nightmare flight. The other end of the world. Yeah, I would yeah. Yeah. It was long, long flights. But yeah. you know what? I made so many air miles because I would fly um on Lufthansa from Dubai to Frankfurt and in Frankfurt to wherever I was going. Uh-huh. I would fly um, Lufthansa, and Lufthansa is part of the Star Alliance with Air Canada. Yeah. So my, my yeah. Air Canada points would gather up from those flights. Hmm. So I had a ridiculous amount of Air Canada points. Yeah, that's true. Because when you when you fly, even if you're not the one buying the flight, you're the one flying, so you get the points, right? Yep. And hmm. the deal was my point of hire for Atco at that time in Afghanistan was Victoria, BC. 
-hmm. So they would be responsible for flying me home to Victoria. Okay. Now, I didn't have to come home. Hmm. I would go to the travel because we had a travel office right there for ATCO. And I'd say, how many kilometers is it? And they'd, they'd say, okay, you have 5,000 kilometers to get home. I'd say, okay, instead of flying me home to Victoria, I want to fly here. I want to fly to Los Angeles. And they'd look at it and they'd say, yes, you have enough mileage to do that. Wow. So okay, instead so, of yeah, you could go the same mileage in any direction. Yeah. I I had, let's say, if the flight home to Victoria would have cost $3,000, mm-hmm. I could spend $3,000 to go anywhere. Oh. I didn't have to go home. Wow. So on my vacations, I would travel. I went to Iceland. I went to California twice. Hmm. Um, my 30-day vacation, I got a I got a, a, a hotel on Sunset Boulevard, rented a car, and for my 30 days off, I was a resident of Los Angeles. Oh, wow. <laughs> so just, that's where I wanted to be. I didn't have my apartment anymore in Victoria. I had given it up. So oh, Okay, so I, you had no I attachment. Had a, no, I had a suitcase and a laptop, and huh. I'd go wherever I felt like going. And whenever you did want to go back to Victoria, where did you stay? I just stayed at a hotel. Okay. I'd, I'd yeah. get to Victoria and why just not? get a hotel room. And why hmm. not? <laughs> I'd be here for a few days and I'd, I'd disappear again. Yeah, when you rent for a long time, you can you know, get, get a better rate, right? Yeah, but the the beauty of it is, I mean, for for all those years, I lived out of a suitcase. I didn't have a place to live. Mm. I I was of no fixed address. My friend who lived here had a had a house here, so I used her address on my driver's license, my health care card. Yeah, I was wondering how you dealt with that because you do need yep. you know some kind of uh, you know, some kind of reference for all your paperwork and all that. Yeah. I, I left, I, I used her address for all my legal documents, mm-hmm. and um, I lived for many years as of, of no fixed address. I just, I just, I was a gypsy. I went where I wanted and did what I wanted. But then I was working up in the oil sands, and that contract was over, and I came back to Victoria, and I was kind of done with that. Mm-hmm. I got an apartment again in Victoria, and I went out. I had a friend in Halifax. I sent him a key because I had a storage. You know those you store it places? Yeah. yeah. I, I had a 10 by 10 storage locker in Halifax. I had a storage locker in Montreal. <laughs> and I had a storage. I had a bunch of stuff stored here in Victoria. And I sent my friend the key, and I sent a truck to the storage locker, and I, I just sent my friend the key, and I said, unlock it, watch the guy load all the stuff, and then throw the padlock in one of the boxes. And I did the same thing in Montreal, and I took all my stuff out of storage here. And when it all arrived, I woke up in the morning in a hotel, and I went to my apartment. I collected the key from the landlord. And all my stuff arrived, and I unpacked it all, and that was the first time in 12 years that I had all my possessions with me in one place. Wow. <laughs> and I kind of I kind of leaned on my kitchen counter the next morning, 
and I made a cup of coffee in my Bugs Bunny mug, which was my <laughs> morning coffee mug. And I leaned on my kitchen counter. I took my first couple of, of sips of coffee, and I just had the biggest, stupidest smile on my face. Because yeah. I was home. I could actually say I was home. Finally settled time. down. Yeah. Did you I have a job at that time? I did not. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I did because I was I was at a second oil sand site. I was up at CNRL, which right. was a different oil sand site about forty minutes from Husky. Oh, okay. Um, so I did I did have a job, and I was still on the on the twenty twenty one seven rotation. Okay. And then that that job ended, and I applied. I looked on Indeed, and there was a company here looking for um, a logistics coordinator. Mm -hmm. So I threw my hat in the ring. And I went for an interview, and I got the job, and I'm still there now. And that was in 2015. Hmm. So um, that's the job I still have now, and I'm still in Victoria. And I go to work every day, and I come home, and I'm home. That's Those gypsy days of going all over the place are long gone now for me. So what do you do exactly? I am a team lead for uh, the asset recovery department in um, a warehouse. What the company I work for does is we take care of all the computers for the government of BC. Oh. Including all the healthcare stuff. If I walk in a hospital and there's typing on a computer, that comes from us. Basically, the government of BC buys all the computers. Okay. And they store them at our warehouse. And then they order them from us. Okay. Wow. So like you, you Claude, you work for the government and you're getting a new computer because every three years they refresh all the computers. Mm -hmm. So you're getting your new computer. Our tech goes to your desk. He unplugs all your old stuff. He puts your new computer up. He makes sure everything works. And then the old stuff comes to my department, which is asset recovery. Okay. And we take we take the assets, we wipe all the hard drives, and we parcel them up, and we send them back to uh, a company that recycles them. Okay. Oh, so they're not even sold. They're just sent directly to recycling. The, the recycling company will sell them off. They'll auction off whatever they can, okay. unless it's damaged, and then it just goes to, to a, a company that gets all the precious metals and everything. It's funny, but, eh? Because we... You know, it's it's pretty obvious that there's somebody taking care of all that. Yeah, you know, all the, the 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 computers and everything else actually, uh, um, you know, throughout the government installations. But you, it's hard to imagine that. Yeah, there's actually an installation somewhere. There's a company somewhere actually doing that full time. You know, there's so much yeah. stuff out there you're not even aware of. And I I've often said even the job I'm doing now. Uh, it wasn't a choice when I was going to school. You know, you looked at the uh, course choices, and there was nothing about show business in there. Uh, no. You know, you didn't know unless you knew somebody in the business because it it was just it it it, it was non-existent. Um, I don't know about your high school, but in my high school, there was actually a drama club. So if you wanted to join the drama club, they would put on a, a stage play every year. And not only with the actors, but I mean, there was people that painted scenery and, you know, yeah. there were, I never did it because I thought all the 
people that did that were kind of nerdy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I I, 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 I'm guessing that there must have been something like that in my school, and I must have had the same mentality at the time. Because but because yeah. you don't know, right? You think you're, oh, you're going to be an actor. You're going to do a play or something. Uh, yeah. You don't know that there's all the technical aspect behind it and all that. Um, yeah, there was there was people that opened yeah. and closed curtains. There was lighting. There was sound. Yeah. There was how did I know? You know I would have was... done that right away, right coming out of school. Um, yeah. But then again, life took me to places that probably forged what I am today. Uh, so my background in all different kinds of uh, of jobs and you know of, of domains uh, kind of put me in a position where. Uh, I'm not just a guy doing technical work. I'm a guy who has experience in finance, and I've got experience in computers and in electronics and and whatnot. So when you build all that up, when you put all that together, um, I can understand um, if um, company leaders sometimes they'll make decisions, and everybody in the shop is going to say, "Well, I wouldn't have done it that way," and I don't understand why they do that. And I can maybe I'm in a better position to understand decisions that company leaders are making because they have a lot of information that other people don't have, and they're dealing with stuff that you're not even aware of, you know. And they see the big picture that you don't. Well, exactly. I, I like the the way that people in the shop say, "Well, if it was my shop, I would do it this way." Well, why don't you get a shop? I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, you're in a free country, man. You can do it. But I'll tell you one thing. I mean, when you walk into the shop, on the left, there's a Mercedes. On on the right, there's a Cadillac. And as long as you're walking between those two cars, you know you're getting paid. Now, when, yeah. when you walk into the shop and you have to step between a Hyundai and a Kia, you better start getting worried. <laughs> I like yeah. my boss to be richer than I am. <laughs> yeah. If not smarter sometimes. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that too. <laughs> hey, I have to ask you something. At some point, um, Clona wanted to send me to um, Nigeria because they sold yeah, a couple of containers of stuff. And uh, and, and I, I refused, of course. The reason I refused is because I, I looked up in the government, uh, the government of Canada, uh, on their site, it says, Nigeria, don't go there. And uh, a little further down, it says, well, if you absolutely have to go there, avoid uh, places where crowds gather up. Okay, so what I'm about to do is embark on a country that my government tells me not to go there. And on top of that, I'm going exactly where they're telling me not to go. Um, so I thought that was a good reason not to go. And I remember uh, saying, Harry, that I, you know, I, I, you know, you'll never pay me enough um, to tell my wife I'm going to Afghanistan and I don't know, see you later, see you in a month. Um, because I've always, every time I see the news and I see people caught in countries like that, I, I always ask, you know, what the hell were they doing there? Um, but Harry says, oh, you sure? There's, there's good money. I said, okay, how much money? He says, well, I'll make me a reasonable offer. I said, you we're off to a bad start right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> reasonable <laughs> offer is not good money for me. <laughs> but anyway, you know, I understand the fact that he sold a whole bunch of stuff to um, to people in Nigeria, and eventually they, they brought them over to Montreal, and, and I trained them. 
And a uh, funny anecdote on that is that for um, the guys came into the shop and I trained them on the board and all that. And then we went out for lunch and um, uh, Rashid, uh, Mohammed Rashid Abdul, uh, who was the guy uh, I was dealing with, uh, we were driving to the restaurant and he was looking at the streets. You remember how bad the streets are in that area with all the trucks pass mm-hmm. by. He says, oh, your streets are just like ours. <laughs> I said, shut up, dude. They're not supposed to be like that. <laughs> yeah, they're not supposed to be. Yeah, but they are. <laughs> yeah. Harry made me that same offer. Yeah, well, I was wondering because I, I remember you called me and you said, hey, we're going to uh, Nigeria. I said, I'm not. And I said, I'm, I'm probably going to, you're probably going to think I'm a wimp, but I, especially speaking to the guy who came back from Afghanistan and, and you know, Haiti, uh, Haiti and, and all that. But I said, I'm, I'm scared. I'm not going there, you know. And I was wondering if you went. No. Okay. No, I, I, I had the same opinion you did. He phoned me and said, oh, this is, and it's like, no. I did the same thing. I went on and I said, what's Nigeria like? And it's like, no. And they said, avoid crowds. Great. I'm going to be doing lighting at an outdoor rock concert surrounded by how many oh, people. Oh, no, not rock concert, no. political events. I found yeah. out later. Oh, you well, want to be in political events in Nigeria, right? And and the funny thing is that Abdul was telling me, uh, well, you know, I don't understand why you don't want to come to Nigeria. It's no more dangerous than New York. And at the time, I, I told him I don't go to New York either. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I say this, and I just came back from a weekend in New York as we speak <laughs> yeah. for the first no, time. It, it was like that when I was in Haiti, though. We had a driver and armed body, bodyguards. Well, yeah. Like we had a, we that... had a security detail. And it wasn't, it wasn't for um, thoughts of being kidnapped or anything. But the political situation in Haiti can change in a heartbeat. Yeah, it's instability. Like our driver, we would be out doing something. We'd be looking at a building or, or doing some kind of work out in the field. And our driver would get a radio call from the office saying, there's a demonstration happening on this street corner that's starting to turn ugly. Hmm. And our bodyguards would say, in the car now. And they didn't mean like in two minutes. They meant now. You get in the car and they would get you out of that neighborhood before all hell broke loose. Jeez. And I remember Harry telling me, uh, oh, yeah, it's secure. I mean, the the trouble is up north in the country. Where you are, it's it's secure. Anyway, you'll have an armed guard with you all the time. I said, he, uh, that's not very comforting what you're telling me there. If I need to have an armed guard with me, I, you know, I'm... I don't. I don't feel that good. <laughs> I asked my boss when I was in Haiti what he thought of our security detail, and because he was ex-military, mm-hmm. and he said, "If all hell breaks loose, first thing I'm going to do is grab the guy's gun and I'm going to defend myself because I can shoot way better than he." Can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a problem. I ne- I never actually the 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 only gun I fired other than my BB gun is uh, a twenty two rifle when I was in Scouts. And that was like, uh, what, 50 years ago? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I I pulled the trigger on a shotgun once. I wasn't holding it. Someone else was holding it, and they said, pull the trigger. Huh. And I put my finger on it, and I pulled the trigger, but I wasn't holding the gun. Hmm. And, 
that's as close to a gun as I ever got in my life. Yeah, and and it's funny because sometimes you talk to Texans. Uh, it happened mm. to me a couple of times, and and uh, and I always ask, oh, well, why do you have weapons? I, well, yeah, everybody's got weapons here. I mean, well, we don't. Well, how do you defend yourself? Well, we don't need to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had that argument with a guy once because I, yeah. I saw this guy on the on the news and. I think he was on the Food Network, but he was showing this smoker that he had built in his backyard, and he was smoking whole hogs on it. Uh-huh. And he's in his backyard, and he's got a sidearm strapped to him. Uh-huh. And I was talking to some American guy, and he goes, yeah? Like, what's wrong with that? And I said, the day I can't stand in my backyard without having a gun strapped to my way, like, yeah. there's something wrong there if you can't even be in your own backyard without having a gun. I, I suppose that it it becomes normal at some point, and uh, I was told uh, I was told that where everybody has a gun, there's no trouble, because everybody has a gun. Is that true? No. Because hmm. you know what? Look, look look at the news. Look at all the mass shootings in the states. Oh, there you go. Yeah. You know, people have guns, and it still happens. But the thing is, you know what? When I got to Afghanistan, the first thing you notice is you're a civilian. So you go to the DFAC for lunch, and you notice that everyone in line with you is armed. Uh-huh. They're all wearing their camouflage uniforms. They all have a sidearm and uh, whatever machine gun they have, be it a AK-47 or I don't even know what it was, but it was a gun. Yeah. And they all have them. And when they get down, they sit down to eat their lunch, and they put their gun laying on the floor beside them. Hmm. So I'm walking with my tray, and I'm looking for my coworkers, and I'm looking around, and there's just a room full of guns. Yeah. And you go, wow, this is this is intense. Yeah. And after you're there for a couple of months, you don't even notice it anymore. It becomes normal. But you are in a war zone. I mean, you expect people to be armed, right? Yeah. But hmm. but it it just becomes like if you go to work every day and everyone is wearing a suit and tie. Yeah, it's just normal. They were wearing a suit and tie. You go to Afghanistan, and everyone's got a machine gun, and it's just normal. It it becomes normal. Yeah, I suppose you can you can normalize just about anything if you see it often enough. Yep. Hmm. But I mean, sometimes, even even now, like getting back to the to the whole industry that we were in. I go to concerts now or I go to events at the arena here, comedy shows and stuff, and I look at all the trussing hanging on the ceiling and the Martin moving lights and the video screens. I just sit there and I look at all the stuff and said to my wife one day, I know how to plug all this stuff in. (laughs) (laughs) I, I know how to make all this stuff work. Yeah. But thinking that way, the technology has changed since I've been working in that industry. Yeah, I mean, when I when I was still working with Cloda, LED lighting was just starting to to, yeah. to come out. I I have no experience with any of the new lighting boards or the new lighting systems. Like I would be, when I first came here, I tried. There was a a company here called Pacific Audio Works, and they are like the Cloda of Victoria. Mm-hmm. And I tried to get a job there. I used my resume, and, and you know, Archie told me if you need a letter of recommendation, I'll provide one. 
Yeah, because I thought and at I, some point you were working for a production company out west. I, I came, Archie had given me a letter of recommendation, uh-huh. and he had given me a couple of names of people he knew, and the guy from Pacific Audio was one of them. Okay. Um, so I went there and I, I applied for a job, but all they would do is they would put you on their tech list where you would get a call for like a four-hour uh, pack-up yeah, or a, yeah, a yeah. four-hour install, you yeah. know, truck loading, uh, machinist work. You had to start at the bottom and work your way up. Yeah. And, and I needed a job. I, cu- I couldn't survive on a four-hour call every three weeks mm-hmm. to try to establish myself with them as someone they could they could count on or to get a warehouse job and packing their kits. And no, stuff like technically that. your background should be enough to put you in a different seat. And that, yeah. but it all, it's all a question of timing because at the time you were looking for a job, they probably had all their regular people. Um, if you, uh, if you look at the time today or shortly after COVID, uh, anybody with half a brain would get hired full time by those production yeah. companies. And I remember, actually, Sal from uh, Pro Staging actually used those words. If you know anybody with half a brain looking for a job and who'll show up on time, send them my way. So it it was bad. I mean, there was, you know, a lot of people just up and left, did other stuff. And, um, you know, either... Well, there was no gigs. Well, there was no gigs. So uh, a lot of people retired, those who could. Uh, a lot of them just decided to go up and do something else. And once you've tasted uh, a nine-to-five job or, uh, you know, something regular where you have your life back, uh, you have to think twice before going back to that crazy life. And a lot of them just committed suicide. We lost a lot of good mm-hmm. people there. Yep. So that was tough. That was tough. But then, yeah, that's it. So the industry is trying to get back up. And it's it's, you know, it turned on all of a sudden. And, you know, three quarters of the crew is gone. And But it's funny when you say that, like, you know, people with half a brain. I remember some of the crews that we got. <laughs> I knew a lot of people with half a brain. <laughs> I, I remember the first time, you remember Robert Parody? Yeah. Well, of course. He used, yeah. he used the word the first time I heard him call a crew onions. Yeah, onions. I had, ne- yeah. I, had, I had never heard that before. And he goes, oh, man, I'm surrounded by onions. And I went, what? And he goes, yeah, the longer <laughs> you stay around them, the more you cry. And I had never heard that before. Yeah. But, I rem- but I remember some of the crews coming in. When I was at Cloda, I would I would ask, um, what's her name? The booker there. Um... Gigi. Yeah, Gigi. She's still around, her... you know? She's still around, she, uh, I think she, yeah, she worked with Renault at a different place. At one oh time. man, she was all over the place. She was with LSM uh, recently. She was, uh, she, she spent some time at Solotech. Um, now she's doing something else, but I, I hear from her from time to time. Cool. Yeah. But I, I remember her like sending me texts for gigs, mm-hmm. and I remember guys walking in. They were green, and. They wanted to be lighting guys or sound guys. And some of those guys now, I've seen them working at Cavalia and Cirque du Soleil. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, well, there was one guy I knew that was w- touring with Britney Spears at one time. Yeah. When, when she when she was huge. And it's like, I remember those guys walking uh, in going. Jean Charles. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I remember those guys walking into their first gig going, what do I do? How do I do this? I like they were basically pushing cases out of a truck. Yeah, they that's had true. no clue. You know what? No. You just rang a bell there. I got to reach out to that guy. Louis Charles? Uh, Louis Charles. Yeah, Louis Charles Poudret. Louis, Louis Charles. Yeah. I he got I got to reach here. out to that guy. I don't know what he's doing uh, these days. He I lives in heard. Squamish. Where's that? He lives he lives right near Whistler. He lives really? in, the, in the town of Squamish, BC. Yes. I talked to him a um, couple of years ago because my wife and I were going for a weekend trip to Whistler. And oh. I had seen pictures on his Facebook and I recognized the town. And I said, where are you? And he said, I'm in Squamish. Oh. And I said, well, I'm going like in a couple of weeks. I'm driving to Whistler. And he said, well, hook, you know, hit me up when you're going by. <laughs> but the day I called, he wasn't around or something. Uh, I never I never met up with him. Is he still, but he's out here. Is he still touring? I don't. I have no idea what he's doing. Hmm. I, I really couldn't even tell you. But he's out here in the West Coast. Wow. So. Okay. I got to reach out to him for sure. Yeah. That and one thing that threw me for a loop was Bruno. Oh, God. Mini-me? That that was that was when I heard that that just that just pulled the carpet right out from under me. Yeah, and it it, it was really tough. I I never understood. Well, never understood. I knew I, I knew the guy had you know had had uh, uh, he he was sort of depressive. I knew that, um, but I mean I thought you know he had a wife, he had kids. Uh, I thought, you know, he, I thought he had found his place and all that. I remember uh, when I started teaching him how to operate a, a lighting desk, uh, he was insecure. And at some point I, I sort of, you know, just pushed him and I said, listen, dude, you're ready. You're ready. You got it. You got this. And uh, actually one time we were doing um, diversity in old port of Montreal and uh, I was doing one, one stage, and then they put me on another stage, and then I had to come back to the same stage and all that. So in between, uh, Bruno was operating that stage, and he had programmed the console. And uh, when I got on the console to do my show, he said, is this all right? Is this okay what I did? I said, Jesus Christ, you programmed 10 times what I would have done. <laughs> I mean, you're amazing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I saw a lot of pictures on his Facebook of stuff that he had, that he had done the lighting design for, and I, it was spectacular. Oh yeah, he was amazing. He, he, he was so good. He had a talent. He had a natural talent. Yep. Uh, yeah. I I don't know. I mean, I I wasn't even able to go to his funeral. I just froze. No. I went. You know, the problem with with that is that. There's nothing I can do for Bruno anymore. He's gone. I never even had a chance to understand. But even if I did understand, it's too late. So what am I going to go do there? I'm just going to go, like, uh, cry with a bunch of people? Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know. At, at some point, I went just like, uh, yeah, no. You know what? I, don't have, I have no business being there. There's nothing I can do. Uh, so that's it. You know, I just sent, you know, something to the family and all that. But I mean, uh, it, it was it was tough. It was really tough. I never saw that one coming, you know. And even uh, oh. Isabelle Boulay, uh, he was uh, he was uh, the lighting uh, the LD for for Isabelle Boulay, 
and uh, she even mentioned him uh, when she she won an award, and she actually mentioned him when picking up her award. I found wow. that so cool. I went like, "Oh man, this is really great," you know. Um, anyway, I remember. I remember. I remember seeing it on Facebook. I was at work and I came home and I think my wife said something to like, like what's wrong? She saw it in my face right away. Mm. And I couldn't even talk. I just stood in front of her. I was just like dumbfounded. I, I took my phone out and I showed her his profile picture on Facebook and I just lost it. I was just standing there crying. Yeah. I, it was, yeah. And that he one posted one really. last picture just before. Yeah, I know, and that's 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 what I said when I could finally compose myself. Yeah, it's like it said Bruno changed his Facebook profile picture, and then, like, really, I, yeah, it's mm. that was yeah. hard. Yeah, but it's like during COVID, I I couldn't believe, like, I mean, there was no events for like two years. Yeah, that's the problem. It's everything you live for because there's there's a lot of people out there that you know they have no money. They were living paycheck to paycheck to paycheck. Um, yeah, whenever no they had a gig, they would eat. Yeah. no gig, they wouldn't eat. Um, they they would live for the job. You know it, that's what was keeping them alive. And when that job all of a sudden disappeared, I mean, it could happen for a little while, but it lasted two years after two years where everything you've ever lived for it no longer exists i mean that's tough how do you reinvent yourself how do you not everybody has you know the capability of turning around and doing something else especially when you've done that all your life i mean i've done other stuff before i, I was 39 actually when i started doing lighting um but you know a kid coming out of school who does that and does that all his life. And then all of a sudden, you're nothing. Everything you've, you know, where you were a king, all of a sudden you're nothing. And that That's tough. I and remember my... Everyone in, yeah, go everyone ahead. in the industry is looking for the same work you're looking for. Yeah. So there's really nothing for you either. No, exactly. And, and you know, you're, you, you're a king. You're the best at what you do. But what you do doesn't exist anymore. I remember uh, my nephew, uh, you know, as probably as a joke, he's a real estate agent, but he says, hey, he says, I'm going to quit this and I'm going to become a light guy. And that was during COVID. And I told him, dude, that doesn't exist anymore. Find something else. <laughs> yeah, but it was true. <laughs> yeah, tough times, well, I man. Have a friend, I, have a friend, I have a friend that owns a recording studio, and mm -hmm. it's the same thing. I, I asked him. He was out here for for a wedding. Um, one of his friends was getting married. He was out here for like four days, and I, I went for lunch with him. And I used to play in a band with this guy years ago. And I said, so, like, how, how much work is your studio getting right now? Because he's, he's got other jobs. The studio is just something that generates money when when he can. Yeah. And he records his own stuff at his own studio. And he says it's, it's dead. There's people now that are recording on Pro Tools with a laptop. Hmm. Nobody needs a recording studio anymore. Yeah. Like no one's going to come and pay him thousands of dollars for the hours to record something at a studio when they can do it in their basement. Well, it's funny too, because he said there was a, young, a bunch of young guys that came into his studio and they wanted to do some recording. And they were looking at his old 
real to real his studer machine uh-huh. he's got a 24 24 track studer yeah. the stove and he, <laughs> yeah yeah and they were asking him about it so he went and he got a big reel of tape with stuff that he recorded his own music and he said yeah i thread it through the machine and i press play and he said the kids are like whoa what's that and he goes that is what sound is oh yeah like you know like yeah. this is what music is supposed to sound like whatever you're listening to has been compressed to crap yeah you're listening to out of earbuds you're not hearing this is sonic this is what it's supposed to be it's funny too before when we were talking about sound because what I, I had a thought in my head too when years ago i worked with um john young and bill Cannell. we did an outdoor concert um simple plan yeah played i was there simple yeah okay simple plan yeah. played in a parking lot of, of yeah of a des Staples or something yeah yeah and i remember the bass player for simple plan had in-ears mm. but he had one ampeg svt stacked on stage with because he was when I, he said i can hear everything in in-ears but i can't feel can't it. feel it exactly he, exactly he wanted to feel that bass on yeah. the back of his leg I totally understand yep totally understand and, uh, when we were talking about the sonic thing before that made me mm. think of that you know when he said to me i need to feel it <laughs> oh yeah definitely i'm I, well you know that's why shakers are are exist yeah for drummers you know you know this August, I turned 61, hmm. and I'm looking at my life from the time when I lived in Halifax running my own business. I was like 30. I was 31 years ago, and wow. I look at everything I've done and everywhere I've been. I mean, I got married last year again. And, yeah, uh, congrats, I, uh, congratulations on that. Yeah, I, yeah, we were together five years before we got married, and she had never been married before, hmm. you know. It was, I, I look at my life now and it's like, I'm probably happier now than I've, than I've been in a long, long time. Yeah. Well, I'm happy I'm, for you, man. Yeah. I'm financially secure. I got a job. We have a nice place to live. You know, life, life all in all, life is good. Hmm. All I need to do now is win the lottery and it's <laughs> all good. <laughs> but I got to tell this story, Claude, because... It was one of the funniest things that happened when you and I did a gig together. Oh. And we were we were down doing a fashion show in an old post office in East End, Montreal. Oh, I don't remember that. And the the you were doing lighting. It was a fashion show. And at the end of the show, the last thing they had to do was to fire a confetti cannon full of white feathers. Okay. Oh, and when when we were setting up, we got there early, and you were programming your board, and and you yes. accidentally hit the Q yes. button, and you fired the confetti cannon just before the people were going to come into the room. Yes, and I, I remember you, me, Mike Nehemia, the DJ. I remember us all grabbing brooms, and we were frantically sweeping up white feathers so we could reload the confetti cannon before I the. I remember came that the gig. There was there was a circus act, and I still have a picture of that circus act. 
Actually, if you look at my yes. Google profile, oh no, I, I changed it recently. There but, was a uh, woman. There was a woman on a, yes. on a, one of those metal rings that was Ex- doing an aerial. I still have that picture. Because I remember all the people involved in the fashion show. They came out onto the stage, onto the runway, and they made they made like a tunnel. They had their hands up, touching yes. their fingertips. Yes. And they made a tunnel, and at that point, that's when we fired the confetti cannon yeah. with all the white feathers. <laughs> oh, I, I remember just that. remember the look in your face. You pressed a button, and we heard bang, and you went, oh, and everyone just kind of went, oh, crap. And then it was a mass, uh, just mass pandemonium. Well, we tried to clean up the mess. Yep, yep. And the well, people were outside having cocktails. They were just about to come in the room when that happened. Oh yeah, I I so remember that. I mean, I had forgotten that part. Really, I'm glad you reminded me, because that kind of happened to me uh, a couple of years before. I remember doing a tour, and I was like, it was a crazy tour. I mean, Betsyamit, Ilpeo. Now, if you're not familiar with that area, Betsyamit is an Indian uh, reserve up north in in uh, Quebec. And El Peru is close to Montreal, so it's like, uh, I don't know, an 11-hour drive or something like that. So we were totally wasted. And I get to El Peru, and I set up the thing. Back then, it was the Baby Spice uh, tour. Um, and <laughs> and we get to El Peru, and I had this cannon, and the, the confetti cannon was like a 4-inch cannon, and it had a tank, it had an air tank. 120 pounds we used to put in there so i put in a you know normally we would uh load up the cannon with you know broken up confetti and whatnot and uh and i do a click test before putting the air in so i just go click 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 okay so everything's responding good now we put the air in but on that day for some reason i had put the air in before so doing my click test i got boom i got the cannon right in my face (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> uh, when I was moving recently too, I was uh, before I got married. When I finally moved, when we moved in together, because I was still maintaining an, an apartment. So when I decided to give up my apartment and move into to her house, I was going through all my stuff, and uh, I have a Footlocker that I brought back from Afghanistan with me. Oh. And in that Footlocker, I actually found a couple of DVDs of the Bialik fashion shows that we used no! to be in. You're kidding. Yeah. yeah, I still have some of them. No. Oh God. Remember the one with the curtain open? We had this you, you made a laser out of the out of laser pointers that you play with cats. Oh. You I, had like three or you had f- four or five of these little laser pointers. I used you to them I, on Yeah, and, I took cassette cases and I put four laser yes. pointers inside a cassette case. I remember I did that for a launch, an album launch at uh, Lyon d'Or, but I didn't remember that I did that for, yeah, you know what? It's coming back to me now. Yeah, yeah. so when the curtain opened, we had these four rays of, of red light yeah. shining out over the people's heads. Oh, man, you have that? I, I, yeah, I believe I have that on oh, DVD. Wow. I, I, I still have a lot of memories of a lot. I mean, a lot of the gigs are just a blur, but yeah, I do have, um, I do have recollections of, of some of the gigs I did. Either the good times or just like the huge. I remember me and Andre Menard did a did a bar a bar mitzvah at. Um, 
at Shar Hashemayim. Yeah. That that had more lighting and everything than the Metallica show. Like I, <laughs> I just they 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 had. But I mean, we we had two bands and this huge truss with so much lighting on it. I I don't believe. And then we did another one at the Windsor Windsor Ballroom. Well, we, we did, did a huge... we did one. I don't know if you were there at the uh, Atwater. Um, uh, what was it called? Atwater Club. Yeah. Uh, that was like three days of setup with fifteen technicians. Uh, no, thirty technicians, fifteen twenty-six uh, footers. Yep. Uh, and they had even thought of opening up the wall and making a, a loading dock, temporary loading dock, and then re, you know, putting the bricks back yep. in. And they thought of it, and they didn't do it because the city wouldn't allow, you know, to block the the road with the fifty-three footer. Um, but that was a huge gig. That was crazy. I think we were 20 text show call on that thing. It was Yeah, I remember crazy. doing one with on with Andre with uh, Dan Dan mm-hmm. and Louis Rouleau. We did we did this huge bar mitzvah at Windsor Ballroom. And they used both rooms and the hallway. Yeah. yeah. They actually ha- they actually had a tractor trailer from Hydro Quebec parked <laughs> in front of the place. Because Andre Menard was, I forget what number of per um, uh, watts per channel yep. that yep. he was using. But he was drawing power yep. from this truck that was parked outside. Well, the it Outwater was... Club, we had actually, we had rented um, mobile air conditioners. We had like two-foot pipes, uh, two-foot two uh, tubes going up the stairs trying to cool off the room because they had city colors in there and they had yeah, so much freaking lighting. It was crazy. And everything well, had to be on because the client paid for it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The sanctuary was like that. The Christmas parties that used to happen at the sanctuary, it was it was a it was a health club that had a little outbuilding where they used to have um parties and stuff hmm. but the christmas party every year was held on the tennis courts and it was the same thing it was tractor trailer after tractor trailer and we have to unload on the street and bring the stuff down the ramp into an underground parking garage oh. and then push it through the garage through a double door through this um gymnasium and then into the tennis courts hmm. and it was the same thing this party used to take like three days to to do and like another day and a half for the out and one year we couldn't we couldn't push the stuff back up the ramp out of the underground parking garage because it was snowing Mm. and it was too slippery so we had the clode a 26 foot truck with a bunch of span sets put together and it would back down the ramp, and we'd hook up all the road cases like a daisy chain, and he was pulling them up the ramp with the truck. <laughs> it was just, it was just total chaos. Man, the stuff we did is unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> oh God! I, you know? I laugh about it then, but at the time we were doing it, it's like who thought of this nightmare? Like, like, <laughs> like. And then I'd look at my paycheck, and it's like, man. I did. I did all this work for this. Yeah. It didn't even 
it didn't even seem right. Well, <laughs> at the time, it it was cool because I remember here. Let me tell you something. I don't think you were aware of this. I was doing gigs, um, operating lights, uh, operating lights with um, uh, Compulite Spark. Okay, so I had two. Uh, pieces of tape of electric tape or whatever gaffer tape that I would pull down on the right side of the board because there was like a couple of inches of, of free space there so I would pull two tapes down and I would write numbers on these tapes right so I'd start at the top and I'd write a number on the left and a, a, a number on the right and I had two columns of numbers and I was writing numbers throughout the whole evening on these tapes and everybody around me figured it was all well, cue numbers and and you know uh, coordinates and whatnot because I, at that time, uh, Campulite Spark was not graphical. It was it was just columns of numbers. And you would look at the columns of numbers and you would know what your lights are doing, right? Um, yeah, for the tilt and the pan and all. Well, that exactly. Stuff. Yeah. So at yeah. some point you got used to it. So people thought that it was mathematical. Um, and, and you know, I kind of shattered everybody's dream when I kind of when I really explained what that was all about. What it was was on the left column was time, time of day, right, and on the right column was the amount of money I was at because I was charging per hour, and I would update every fifteen minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's good to keep track of it by the minute yeah i remember i was charging 16 dollars an hour and every 15 minutes i would add four bucks and i was like here this is what i made this last 15 minutes and i would calculate and it was so funny because you know when i got to the bottom of the tape then that i was making money you know (laughs) well it was funny too because way back then i mean i always i always liked lighting more than audio because I find, and it's true, lighting is creative. It's creative. Audio is you... Science. It's science. A- audio is science. You, yeah. you, know, you have to know how sound reacts to certain things. And you it's can't science. get creative. No. No, you just have to deliver. I remember doing an Italian concert thing for two days. It was in a park somewhere in East End, Montreal. Mm-hmm. And it was me and um, Jeremy Page. Remember him? Yep. He was doing the sound, I was doing the lighting, and it was for this Italian festival. And there was guys, I don't know how many times I heard Bo Larry played on an on accordion like during that weekend. It was a lot. Because <laughs> even, even now today, me and Jeremy Page, that's how we end our conversation. We say, hey, Bo Larry. You know? <laughs> um, but it, the second day was really windy. And Jeremy says to me, he says, man, this wind is killing me. The, my sound is all over the place. And I looked at him and I said, look at the stage. Blue. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. the wind's not affecting me at all. <laughs> <It's> like, <you> <laughs> <know>? <laughs> like, I press a button, I get blue. Well, the only <laughs> the only time that wind does affect you is is the smoke. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, we didn't have a haze or anything for that. Oh, well. That, we were just, that yeah, we were just it. outside in a park. It didn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and it's, it's just it's just funny. I, I remember all these all these gigs I've done, and like I said, I'm in Montreal. I'm driving around. It's like, yep, been there, been there. Remember carrying stuff down those stairs? Yep. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like I remember. I remember doing 
Howie Mandel. He was doing a really, a, yeah. He was doing a benefit thing. He did two shows. It was an auditorium. It was part of there's a, a like a conference center downtown, but it's not the it's not the Palais Congress. There's another conference center. They have a big soft seat auditorium, probably holds about two thousand people. He did one show up there, and then he did a second show in one of the gathering rooms downstairs. People had paid for dinner first, and then Howie came on afterwards. Mm-hmm. And the second show, when he was down in that room, I was doing follow spot. Hmm. And I was up on a four by four riser in the back of the room with the follow spot. <laughs> and during the show, someone had sat on the front of my platform mm. and they had put their arms behind them and they kind of leaned backwards. So I went to shift my weight and I stepped on the guy's hand. <laughs> And the guy went, ow, and he pulled his hand out from under my foot. Now, I don't know what's going on, so I looked down to see what I stepped on. And at that very moment, Howie moved. So when I looked back up again, he was about six feet away. So I moved the follow spot to catch up with him. And then for the next five minutes, I was the butt of all his jokes. <laughs> of course. He, just, he, he looked right at me and said, like, am I moving too fast for you? <laughs> like, and then he goes, I got an idea. Prison break tonight at midnight. Everyone just do this. And he just moved to the left. You know? <laughs> and uh, oh, the whole audience is looking back at me now. And it's like, oh, man, I just remember going, oh, just, just carry on with your show out. Like was, oh, that's fine. That's fine. You're part of the show. I mean, it's it, yeah. It is what it is. And to you know? this day, to, to this day, I still laugh at it because it's, well, yeah, you know, I, I I screwed up a Howie Mandel bit, but you know, <laughs> he he used it and he just he just made me part of the show, which I didn't want to be. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that's it. I mean, this these are you know comedians. They're used to doing things on the fly, right? Yeah, and, and anything happens uh, with the technical. Uh, crew they'll they'll you know they'll bring it into the show they're used to it um yeah. you know a funny I just thing tried to be a, i just tried to be professional and i kind of yeah yeah it. yeah so I was like yeah but i remember um a fall spot story where i was doing a gig with telav at probably queen elizabeth hotel or something like that and i was on the follow spot and the follow spot it got you know uh it, it was doing a lot of noise was making a lot of noise. As soon as I was moving, it was going queek, queek. It was queaking a lot. It was you know old old stand, and the um, the producer, which was a woman, she was putting on Lipsil. And uh, and I look at that and I tell her, "Oh, hand me that." So she kind of gives it to me without really knowing what the hell that was all about. I just pull out my my Gerber, my knife. And I just cut a chunk off of it, and I greased up my follow spot with it. <laughs> hey, man, you got to think on the fly. It worked, man. <laughs> well, it's like it's like your whole comedy bit with the follow spot. You remember when we did that Christmas party with Little Richard? Yes. And oh. you had the he had the whole thing planned where he'd say, "Hey, light man, make my stage red." Yeah. You'd have to go blue, and you'd say, "I said red," and then you'd give him green. Yeah. I said red. Yeah. <laughs> But the the thing is, he was supposed to make a joke about it, and because the the room was filled with Jewish people, 
And yeah. and the joke was that he was supposed to actually it was blue. He was asking for blue lights, and and uh, so I gave him another color and whatnot. We 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 did the get. Uh, we did the the the, the bit. And and then he was the punch line was supposed to be what the hell's wrong with you are you Jewish or something you know that was the that that was the funny part but I think he backed away from it and he never did it so so it just made you look like yeah idiot. yeah it's just me I'm an <laughs> asshole you know I can't do blue lights <laughs> oh yeah I remember that gig too oh yeah that and was, I remember that gig actually the lights turned on twenty minutes before doors opened yep. And yeah, we got, I got there with Daphne in the afternoon, and, and mm. the crew was way behind schedule. Yeah, and I remember I was on that, too. Yeah, I just remember me and Daphne going, oh, shit, we took our coats off, and we just, like, start moving stuff, starts getting, like, this, this has to happen. Oh, yeah, it, it was it was crazy. I, I remember there was two boards, because there was um, Eric No on, on an yep. MA, and I was on the Sabre. And I remember the uh, uh, Little Richard's producer comes up to me just before the show and and I got nothing programmed man the kit just turned on I'm starting to do stuff and he walks up to me and I'm like oh shit this is it I mean whatever you ask me I'm in deep shit and <laughs> he was such a cool guy you know he comes up to me and he says he tells me about that blue light thing you know the the cue and he says other than that uh he shows me a cue list on which there's two songs <laughs> He says, this is the first song he's going to do, and this is the last song he's going to do. In between that, I have no clue. He does what he wants. Have fun. Rock and roll. <laughs> Man, I was like, oh, bless you. <laughs> I remember when we got there in the afternoon and all hell was breaking loose. And me and Daphne were running around just like, okay, you take this crew over there. I'll take this crew over there. We're just trying to get it done. And there's a little scrawny guy that comes in with a little toolkit, and he says, "I'm here to tune the piano." Oh yeah. I need I need four hours of complete silence, and his tour manager says, "I'll give you five minutes in whatever's happening right now." And the guy <laughs> goes, "Well, I can't work like this." He goes, "Bye bye." Yeah. He just threw the guy out. <laughs> you think you're going to get four hours of complete silence? I don't think so. Well, you know, in the end, does it really matter? I mean, I remember no. that show. Um, he only played about four songs. He he spent more time talking than he did playing. Oh, he talked and he tried to distribute books, and he was like, yeah, yeah he was out of it. But I'll tell you one thing. He's a legend, right? We yeah. had the opportunity to do it. I wish I could have done Jerry Lee Lewis because yeah. he's kind of my, you know, my idol. And uh, I never got a chance to do it. Uh, you know, he he died recently. Uh, but I wish I could have done that. But I, I'm so close. at your age right now. Would you go out on a big tour as a lighting guy for like, like, Counting Crows or or any band? Would Would you actually consider packing your bags and going on an, on a seven month tour? No, I'll tell you why. I, I wouldn't do that, and, and th there's a good reason for it, because I got married in 1988, okay, mm -hmm. with the woman I've been with since 1982, and I'm she's still around, okay? She's still here. 
Um, so today I got this, uh, I call it a grandpa job <laughs> where I work for a distributor. So I do trade shows, but that's about the only time I leave the house. Um, other times I've, you know, it's just a regular job. So my wife stuck around for all the craziness I've been through and all, all that stuff. So I figure I owe her, right? And... And I kind of enjoy having a life, having my weekends, having my, you know, my, my evenings. So once in a while, I, I will accept a gig from a friend who overbooks himself and I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'm always happy to step into a theater and, and do stuff. I'm very happy, but you know, pack my bags and go out on a gig again. I, that would probably be the end of my life. Mm -hmm. So I don't think uh, I'm actually I'm pretty sure that I would not do that again unless I found myself for some reason you know if I was alone for some reason then yeah I would have a good reason to go go out there and just keep busy uh, but right now I'm I got a good life and uh, I, you know, I I I think I'll just take care of that and not yeah, go I back hear you out. man yeah, I said the same thing basically earlier. Like, you know, my life right now is as is as good as it's ever been. Hmm. So, yeah. yeah, well, we, we we've done it, right? Yeah. And there's another yeah. thing too. We're getting older, and we don't have as much um, as much energy as we had before. Yeah. yeah. Early earlier on in my life too. I mean, I I've done a lot of jobs where it was very physical. Even with the lighting and stuff like that, I mean, when you're when you're lifting Martin like Mac 500s out of the road cases and putting yeah. them on a truss, there's there's a certain amount of of physicality to yeah. what we were doing. And even before that, I worked for a company where we delivered stuff to the ships that came in the port. Yeah. Like there was some heavy things that I was moving on. I I worked my body hard, mm -hmm. and I feel it now. I'm 61 now. I've been sitting here since since like. For what two and a half hours now talking to you mm -hmm. standing up it's going to be an adventure oh, yeah. <laughs> like, my body's going to creak and crack and the first four steps yeah. i take away from my chair my feet aren't going to know what to do i'm going to have to stop and like get them on board you know yeah yeah and uh, and at some point at some point i'm going to have to get up and and go take a shower um because and go to bed. what time is it there now well it's it's uh 12 30 a.m yeah Yes, it's nine twenty-one here. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll keep thinking of other stuff that happened to us when we were young. <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> All right, take care, my friend. Okay, thanks, Claude. All right, talk to you soon. Bye bye. Bye bye. The Backstage Cowboys podcast is brought to you by AVL Media Group and Avolites, who make the best lighting consoles in the world. If you live in Canada, you now have access to the Avolites Academy online learning platform. The cost is $229, and that includes an editor Avo key delivered directly to your door. Head on over to BackstageCowboys.com and click on the Avolites Academy logo to get all the details.